HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history here on Heritage Radio Network. And today we're going to be talking about China, Chinese food culture. China has a long and complex culinary history. From ancient times and imperial China to socialist reform and modernity, food has been a reflection of cultural triumph and cultural struggle. Chinese culinary authorities Qi Lum and Diora Fong Chan talk about their new book, China, the Cookbook, and help us decode some of that history and the vast regional differences within that cuisine. And I have with me today on the phone Qi Lum, um, and he is... Are you there, Qi? Yes. Okay, welcome to the show. Um, I... I have to say that you you and your wife Diora wrote that you had no idea how much you were were biting off to use a pun <laughs> to write this book how much you know the information there was going to be and I have to say that it's a little intimidating to even think of a question to ask you because there is so much information but tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into writing about the cuisine Oh okay well I, I'm not a chef to start out with. Okay, my family has a, has a good history of knowing about food. My father was a very famous writer on food, newspaper man, and I sort of learned a lot from him. Uh, I worked in IT, IT industry for a long time, but always maintained interest in food. So when my wife and I retired, she has her own business, by the way, uh, not in the IT industry, but in the uh, steel structure business. Anyway, we'd retired and we decided then why not write down what we know. So we started to write cookbooks and started with uh, Chinese cookbooks in Hong Kong and we published 15 cookbooks. And then before we were approached by Fiden to write this cookbook on China. 
Well, it, so that's how we got spotted. It, it's an it's a beautiful book. First of all, Fiden Press always does a, a nice job with the books, but this one in particular, it's uh, it's just if anyone's thinking of a you know of a, a good read and a good gift, this is a beautiful book to do so with. And, but how in the world did you research all the recipes that are are included from all the different regions? That's a good question. Now, actually, we lived in China for quite a number of years. Okay, I, I worked for, for the IT industry there, and then my wife has her own business also, and spent a lot of time in China, so we were able to travel pretty much to all the regions in China, I think with the exception of Tibet because of the altitude. Uh-huh. Uh, so we were able to sample, uh, test, and, and really check out the local cuisine a lot. Uh, we've been to uh, every region, as I said, except Tibet. And uh, one thing, the first thing we usually do was to go into the market, see what's available, go to the bookstore, and then we sample out the food in the restaurants. Hmm. Uh, we are we were always naturally curious, so we asked a lot of questions. So in the years in China, we were able to collect a lot of information from all the various areas, and then we built a, a sort of database at home on our computer of things that we learned. So when it comes to writing this cookbook, we find that, well, we have a good the reservoir of recipes, about 1,200 of them. Huh. And we were able to select from all that. Uh, well, actually, we delivered 800 recipes to the publisher for them to select from, and which finally came down to about 650. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, um, it is amazing that you were able to, to cover, and I, and I have to say that um, I can let you explain as we go on later, but the recipes are um, not organized according to each region, but they, what is it according, well, like a, a standard cookbook, different, like poultry or fish or, or something like that, right? Right, because, well, we have thought about organizing by region, and it was sort of difficult because some regions have a long and very rich history because of the uh, particular uh, environment, ingredients available, and some regions have very little, like in the Mongolia or Tibet. So, so if I were to classify by region, then some regions will probably just get missed because there are so few. Uh-huh. And so in a sense, that it is better to organize by ingredients, by types, and so on. Right. And what's really nice is that you do, in the little head note, you do identify which region that particular recipe comes from. And, um, and then you can go back to the beginning of the book and read a little bit about that region and you know what we might be tasting. And we're going to get to those regions in a minute, but let's let's start at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're talking we're we're not talking about a brief history here. We're talking about over 3000 years of 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 history in 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 terms of culinary history. Um uh, tell me a little bit about um I don't know what in a nutshell, I guess I could say how uh <laughs> How you know the the emergence of um, of what we would consider to be Chinese cuisine? Well, let me start there from the beginning. <laughs> That's always a good place. Actually, it is. It started more than three thousand years ago. And if I if I were to go back, it's probably started at about nine to ten thousand years ago. Because when 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 did when they did excavations in China, they were able to to unearth several. Uh, pieces of pottery dated oh, about nine to 10,000 years ago. And some of them are very, very significant to Chinese culinary culture development. And one is, well, I better not use the, the old term because nobody would understand. Hmm. 
there are three pieces that ultimately emerges as what we see in every Chinese home today. One, of course, is the pot, which everybody really has. One is the wok, and one is the steamer. We had all these three things about 10,000 years ago, and basically they haven't changed too much. Uh, they change a little bit in shape, and they change in terms of the uh, materials they are made out of. But the, the, the way they were used is very much similar to what we do today. Oh, so we have a long, long history in terms of, of the appliances. Yeah, and that's, that's, so, that's so wonderful, it's so amazing, because when you think of Chinese cooking techniques, that's what you think of, right? The steamer, the right, wok, right? Right, and then, and then secondly, if I, if I may, I spend a couple more minutes, if it's okay with you. Sure. Actually, about four or 5,000 years ago, we were using forks. Mm-hmm. That, that may be news to, to most people. Mm-hmm. And I think forks and chopsticks sort of uh, existed at about the same time. But ultimately, the chopsticks uh, went out. It's <laughs> interesting. <laughs> we yeah. became a chopsticks culture. And because, again, again, coming back from actually going to archaeology, you know, the, a lot of forks were on the earth about three. 3,000 years ago, and then gradually they disappeared around for 2,000 years ago. Huh. And chopsticks really came into fashion. Yeah. Well, and ever since that, we have become a chopsticks culture. There are two wonderful exhibits in New York right now, um, Chinese food in, a, in America at the Museum of the Chinese in America, and also at the Museum of Food and Drink, there is Chow, and that's a um, an exhibit on Chinese food. And I think this, I think the fork... Discovery came about. I mean, in that out of one of the museums, I think they actually mention it. So, <laughs> oh, so you're, that's yeah. great. I, I did. I, I must have caught, you know, caught a, a notice of it online or something. But um, the idea, you know, the, there's a whole philosophy around eating. I know that you talk a lot about um, in the book, and and that I've talked with other um, guests in talking about Asian cuisine here on the show. And that common greeting, have you eaten rice yet? Okay, talk a little yes. bit about that ideology. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I, think, I think food has always been uh, in the problem, I think, in the past, uh, even throughout all the centuries. Now, we have a lot of people and very little arable land, so food has always been difficult for the majority of the people. So this greeting really reflects the times of how difficult things were. Okay, the fact that you can fill your stomach is really a good sign. And that's how people greet each other. Have you eaten yet? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, they don't say this anymore. Oh, they don't? Nowadays, they say, how are you, ni hao ma? Because okay. I think people have enough to eat. <laughs> well, that see, shows how times have changed. Well, yes. you spoke about how um, very little of the land was is arable and, and agricu- uh, turned over to agriculture. In fact... Um, you write that feeding China is a monumental task, that, it, that uh, despite the size, only 11% of the land is suitable for agriculture? That is right. That's a amazing. A lot of the land is mountainous or deserts. Mm-hmm. So that does create quite a problem right there. Uh, yes, it certainly did. Yeah. Uh, and during the, I mean, there are so many... Um, there were so many famines. I mean, you know, a lot of things. Obviously, a lot of a lot of things came and went over the yes. millennia. But <laughs> that is true. famine is something that the famines, the great famines, were uh, something that some you said one one per year. 
during uh, the they period? Used, they used to have it very, very frequent, whether it's once per year or once per every couple of years. But they happen in various regions, uh-huh. a lot of natural disasters, and uh, like locusts or, or, or parchment. Right. on having no rain and so on. So that has been something uh, throughout uh, Chinese history. And, and as we read history books, we learn about these great floods, the great famines, and, and they were seem, seem to be happening all the time. Right. Well, in fact, you know, having grown up in the 50s and 60s here in America, I mean, that was if, if as a child, if one did not finish the food on your plate, you know, you were admonished by your parents saying, oh, that's right. <laughs> think of the starving children in China. I mean, you know, and, and you know, after a while we said, well, then send it to them, you know, but, but in, yes. indeed it was, it was an issue and it was a, a, a very serious issue. Um, and, and understanding the fact too, that now that, you know, agriculture is not an easy thing uh, in that area, it, it stands reason aside from wars and, and, you know, and, uh, other political issues that occurred. Um, There are, I mean, the regions, well, before we get to the regions, I guess actually, there, it seems like there's a wonderful philosophy often in in Chinese um, culinary background and, well, in in their way of life too, but um, that eating for health has always been um, more mindful eating, let's put it that way. Um, Yes. And can you can you shed a little light on that for me? Yes, uh, I, again, I, I have to go back into history again. Uh, around 2,700 years ago, there was a very famous gentleman named Lao Tzu, and I think people, some people may know about it. And he wrote a book, and in which he, he talked about the way of nature. Okay, he said the na- nature has a, a way of balancing itself. Whatever happens, ultimately, nature works itself out. And his book was really about the political philosophy of the current of the times then, but he said it also applied to our everyday life. Mm-hmm. We we were born in nature. We rely on nature. We take from nature and we give back to nature. So he said, well, you follow the, follow the nature way, and eventually things will balance out. Okay, so so that was the way of nature, and it applies to our everyday life. Applies to what we eat, how we eat, and so this has sort of become. The basic philosophy in terms of Chinese culinary development. Now, this is not talking about the, all the banquets and restaurants, but everyday life. Uh, we try to maintain a balance in what we eat. So, if you look at Chinese uh, Chinese food at home, you will find uh, a very large portion of our food is vegetables. A small portion in meat and some carbohydrate in rice or noodles. So, we get a very uh, nice balance just based on what nature provides and what our body requires. And this has always been the Chinese philosophy of, of food and of eating at home. Okay. Now, the other thing is that we understand that uh, when our body is, when we don't feel well, it is because our body is out of balance for whatever reason. And the way to redress this imbalance is, again, through eating the right food. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that's pretty much ingrained in, in most Chinese minds. Oh, you're feeling uh, not where your stomach doesn't feel well today, or you get a little headache. Well, let's try something else. We use different ingredients in food to help to redress that balance. And, and, and over time, we find that it really works. Interesting. Oh, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, about writing about cuisine, how much early um, written record of the cuisines exists that, that you know of? 
the earliest one about culinary culture was about 3,000 years old. Hmm, interesting. Okay, it talked about you know, how you lay a table, you know, where you put your meat, where you put your drink, how do you sit, how do you greet uh, uh, your friend when you invite him to dinner, how do you walk, and so on. So there was a lot about, uh, I would say, has to do with food and how you deal with each other. And in a sense, there was... That laid down some rules, how you behave towards each other when it comes down to food. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we like to write, you know, Chinese love to write. And you have uh, historians, you also have scholars who write about it. And a lot of them are on food. And some of the earliest writings went back to about, I would say, around the 5th century or thereabouts. Hmm. And we've been having uh, uh, written documentation of books ever since. And these books have recipes. They talk about ingredients. They analyze the ingredients and talk about it. So, so we have a rich literature history uh, handed down to us through the centuries. Yeah. And from this, we were able to gather a lot of information about our own culture. Well, you wrote that um, the, you talked of it as a golden age of cuisine in the Tang Dynasty. Just when you just what you said, you know, it was more like the seventh century, maybe the yeah you know, between the fifth or seventh century. Um, and the culinary arts really evolved at that time. But it was soon, during this time and soon after, that there were a lot of influences uh, through China, with, through the Silk Road as well, correct? Yes, yes. The, uh, actually, there, there were two, two ages. One was during the Han Dynasty, about 2,000 years, a little bit over 2,000 years ago, when they opened up to the West, you know, through to uh, places like uh, West Asia. Mm-hmm. The, the route was really established. And then later, around 7th century, in the Tang Dynasty, the, the Silk Road was really blooming. And, and, and merchants from Iran, or even as far as uh, uh, maybe some parts of Europe, traveled to China, and some of them actually lived in China for a long time. And they brought a lot of their own cultures and ingredients, but I think one of the most important developments is that they bring in chairs. Prior to the the Tang Dynasty in the 7th century, we didn't have chairs, so everybody sat on the floor, on a mat, Mm -hmm. pretty much like what they do in Japan and Korea today. Mm -hmm. And and they use low tables for what they eat off. And so and so every everybody eat their, they have their own portion. It's like pretty much like in Western cuisine today. You have their own, their own setting, your own plate, and all that. Oh. And it's, so only in the Tang Dynasty when they uh, brought in chairs, and, uh, they were able to sit around a table sharing a meal. In, this, in in pretty much as we do today. Interesting. I like that. Um, I am interested in having you talk about the. Um, the eight great cuisines and the regional differences uh, of the Chinese cuisine. And we will do that as soon as we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. All right. There are over 50,000 Chinese-American restaurants in the U.S. That's more than three times the number of McDonald's. How did Chinese-American food become so popular? And what's the story behind their unique menu of dishes like egg rolls and General chicken? Brooklyn's Museum of Food and Drink is going to explain it all with our next exhibition, Chow, the Making of Chinese-American Cuisine, featuring tastings, beautiful artifacts, and live demos of a fortune cookie machine. 
Visit chow.mofad.org to learn more, get advance tickets, and help us make this exhibition a reality. Again, that's the Museum of Food and Drink at C-H-O-W, chow.mofad.org. Hi, we're back, and what an appropriate uh, little break to be playing during this show. Um, talking about that uh, exhibit that I mentioned earlier at the Museum of Food and Drink on Chinese on Chinese American food, and I am talking with uh, Ki Lum Chan. Uh, he and his wife Diora have written a wonderful book uh, published by Fiden Press called. China, the cookbook. Pretty simple title, but not a simple book. And it is, um, is something. It really quite is, is something quite to behold because it's it does encompass a lot of information, a lot of wonderful recipes, um, and and helps I think give um, give us an understanding of the 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 real vast cultural differences within one country um, in terms of the cuisine. And Keelum, you mentioned that um, well, in the book, you and your wife write about that there are really eight great cuisines. And this has been mentioned in many different um, books on Chinese cuisine, eight great cuisines or in the different regions. But indeed, the regions, there must be, how many regions are there in total? I mean, there well, are a lot of regions. Well, I, we, use, we, we put in 33 regions, and mm. I use regions pretty loosely and not necessarily by uh, administrative areas because I think food regions sort of stands by themselves uh-huh. because of their uniqueness. Uh-huh. Interesting, yeah. Um, but as far as the eight great cuisines, what are these? Could you explain that for me? Well, I think these eight great cuisines are are in areas where there has been a long period of stability and also availability of ingredients. So they were able to develop pretty much uh, throughout history a uniqueness to, uh, to their own uh, culinary culture uh, as compared to maybe places where in the north where it's, you know, it's not as stable and, and secondly, the weather, the conditions are not so that ingredients are always uh, available. So, uh, so pretty much the eight great cuisines are all, all along the east the coast of China and a little bit to the west in the, in the area of Sichuan. Uh, these are areas where it has always been pretty stable throughout history, mm-hmm. uh, and people were able to develop their own uh, style. Now, China is a land of diversity. We, were, we have uh, Currently, we have about 56 different ethnic groups and they all have their own culture, and they were developed throughout centuries. Uh, some of these were grouped together, and some of these were not. And, and, but overall, we were, we were able to, to assimilate many of these cultures. So in a sense, when you talk about Chinese food, uh, in, a, in some sense, uh, the way we prepare the stuff is very, very similar throughout the regions. But then the regional differences comes in in terms of their own local climate, like uh, Sichuan is very hot and humid, and they like to eat a lot more chili. Whereas in, in Canton, where the, the weather is mild and we love seafood. Again, those are, areas, those are things that would contribute to regional differences. Mm-hmm. And over time, we say, oh, that's our style. But, but we really learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you, you did say, you did actually kind of synthesize some of the, the regional character um, characteristics. You said it was a gross simplification, but you did 
ascribe certain flavors to the different regions. Yes. Um, can you can you uh, state those again for us? Well, uh, different flavors. I, I would say if I have to sort of generalize it, so mm-hmm. to speak, uh, people in the South uh, tend to uh, go for the little bit milder flavor, like Canton. We we like fresh fish and right. so the fish, and we like the the freshness and the taste of the, the original ingredients. Whereas if you would, the more north we go, the climate becomes harsher, it gets very cold, and people tend to eat food that is a lot saltier, probably because what their body needs. Okay? Mm-hmm. And then if you go to the south southwest side, the climate is hot and humid, and amongst the mountains. And again, people would tend to eat food that is more stimulating, like you know, sour and hot. Uh, and so on. If you go East China, and uh, the the people tend to favor the sweeter foods, mm-hmm. like like in Shanghai or Zhejiang, they use a little bit more sugar in their cooking. Interesting. Okay, so, so so generally, I think those are the the factors uh, that affect what people favor. Yeah. Um, what about meat? How how um, predominantly does does meat play in? Um, across the country in different regions? Or is there, are there some regions that are more uh, vegetarian, aside from religious uh, reasons? Or, yes, or? yes, there are differences. Yeah, the, the meats are, I would say, more predominant in the north and the northwest area. Again, again for historical reasons, because they were not able to, until recent times, to have a lot of vegetables. You know, when you go to Xinjiang, where it's most, mostly desert, when you go into Mongolia, it's pretty much grassland. And people would eat uh, very little vegetable and mostly lamb. Okay, But whereas you go in to, the, to the south, people are more vegetable-oriented. Uh, as, as you go to uh, take a regular Chinese dish, you would probably find that about 80% of them are vegetables and only 20% meat. And this is perhaps some of the reasons why we seem to use more oil in cooking than Western cuisine, because you get very little animal fat. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, so that, and then of course veg, vegetarians, uh, we have our special brand of vegetarian food, and that is the Buddhist vegetarian style. Right. Okay. And again, this is something that has been handed down. To us, with ages now fifteen, sixteen hundred years, and and everybody likes it because every now and then we say we want to 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 balance our body, and and, and it's good to have purely vegetarian food sometimes, and this is also a pretty much a constant part of our diet. Uh, and as far as um, uh, cuisine, you know, we could. I could go asking you a, a specific dish from each region, but that uh, that would take a long time and, we, and would be yes. a little more complicated. I just have to say to my listeners, go buy the book, right? But uh, um, in as far as some things that we that we recognize and that we know of, we we think of we we hear of the Confucius teachings all the time, of course. And is there is one region? Is there one region that actually emphasizes this style of cooking as well? And what, what would that be? What would the style of cooking be? Uh, can you repeat your question again? The Confucius Sorry. style, you know, teachings ah. of and, and cuisine influenced by those teachings. Well, it's Confucian, 
the Confucian style is really uh, something that they they practice in the Shandong province, uh, Shandong, uh-huh, region, Shandong. Uh-huh. in the eastern or uh, more tense north towards the northern side, because that's his hometown. Okay, uh, actually, Confu- the Confucian style of cooking uh, really did not start with Confucians. Confucius. It started in his hometown. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and uh, of course, there's people who uh, know more and more Confucius in later ages. And then there's a good uh, commercial opportunity. <laughs> and people start to develop things that are more, they, they, they term confusion, the very strict rules about how they cook and all that. Uh-huh. But I would say that Confucius style of cooking is pretty much limited to that region. Again, more because of the name. Uh-huh. Okay. And elsewhere, I, I think you don't find that. Everybody does their own thing. Interesting. Uh, and some things that we, um, are there some, uh, what I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is uh, some things that originated in particular provinces that you don't see elsewhere, let's say like um, uh, tofu or soy sauce. What about the, soy sauce, I mean, what, what, is there one unifying element or is there something that is unique to a particular region anything you can think of to illustrate that that notion let me see what is unique and nowadays there's not all that much uniqueness sure right it is so easy to access all the ingredients right um let me see what is unique i would say there's no particular thing that is so unique because again no because we we absorb each other's uh, cooking style Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there, are, there are particular areas where the cooking styles haven't changed. Like, like in Inner Mongolia, they would eat the lamb, they would boil the whole lamb, and they still do that. And so, uh, they, all they use is salt. I mean, they don't use it much else. That's particular in that particular style. But elsewhere, I would say, you know, we use share very much of the similar ingredients. We use soy sauce, which of course comes from soybeans. Uh, there are various types of soy sauce again, depending where you go. Uh, we have some unique. Uh, some sort of unique uh, sauces, like in Sichuan, you have the the, um, the chili paste. Uh, you, you go to Canton, you have a soybean paste, and, and you go up north. But anyway, there are different tastes, but they tend to be available everywhere, and people learn to use them in their own local cuisine nowadays. So, so more and more, we have become we have assimilated all the various elements and be able to integrate them in our particular style. So, so in a sense, they, are, you know, they get to be starting to have some similarities, I would say. But still, still, you can recognize the cuisines as you go from place to place. Uh-huh. The flavors are different, and the looks are different. The colors may be even different. Huh. Um, you had mentioned um, something that I, I, I read that I, that I wrote down, because it stuck with me, um, was in the Henan region, or Henan region, Hunan. No, Hinan. H, not, uh, not the Hunan, Hinan. Had the longest... Yunnan. Yunnan or Hunan? Hinan, yeah. Has H-E-N-A-N? A, yes. Oh. That it had the longest culinary history, and uh, and uh, the first gourmet cook on record was there? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, but then he has a very interesting history. Yi Yin, is that... Yi Yin, yes. <laughs> that he started out as a slave and ended up becoming prime minister was oh that? yes <laughs> <laughs> well that that's that was i thought that was um 
That was pretty interesting. And this is what you can do with good cooking. That's right. I was going to say that's <laughs> all you got to do is give them a good meal and look what happens. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, how much did um, or does even today? Um, there's so much exposure to other cultures today. I mean, I know for a while their things were were cut off um, to you know the availability of products were cut off. You know, from they were cut off from the the rest of the world. But today. There are immigrants and and um, uh, sharing cultures. How much does that play in the cuisine? Do you, are you seeing a lot of influences of other cultures in the cuisines? Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, I think people have opened up a lot more. I can get this actually quite a bit from Western influence as well, uh, the modern influence from the West, and people do a lot more experimentation. Okay, whereas in the old days they stick to very traditional styles. Now they were uh, more interested in, in renovating or creating uh, new stuff. And also, you know, th- this is another thing that, that they start to do is in plating. Ah. Okay. In, in traditionally, we, we didn't really care. We cooked things and put them on a plate and share the food. But, but nowadays they are a lot more interested because of the Western influence in presenting the food in a certain way. The plating becomes very important. Okay, as we go for to the more, uh, I, I would say the upper scale restaurants, you see that a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay, also if they want to uh, use new ingredients, um, or some uh, new mushrooms from the West, or or even sauces, for example. You know, a lot of people, Worcester sauce is, is very popular. Okay, for example, things like that. We were able to absorb um, Western influence, like um, mustard, for example. We use that in our sauces we uh-huh. didn't before. Hmm. Or wasabi, you know, from Japan. Uh, so so we, we, we were assimilating uh, external influences and sort of made it into part of our own culture. Huh. Well, you and Dior um, wrote that you, you often refer to, well, we as a, I mean, you as a culture too, the Chinese culture, the, the, the Western culture too. Um, I see it resonates with me that speak of food in terms of, of, or think of food, refer to food in terms of color, aroma, and taste. And um, for the Chinese cuisine in particular, I think that is, it plays large, particularly in, in the way that, um, that the, um, the food is prepared. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Uh, because, again, you know, the, the Chinese way of looking at preparation of food is that we want to make certain that every bit of ingredients is cooked to, to perfection. And that is why we spend so much time in preparing. For example, we, we cut the food into a certain size, we will cook, cook each of them separately to get the best out of it, and hopefully in the final integration of all the ingredients, we get a perfect dish. So we spend a lot of time preparing and, and making sure that everything comes out right. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, certainly um, the Western culture's uh, hunger for for some of those more unique flavors, and uh, and you know we will, you know we will create the trend of the moment, whatever it might be. Um, from <laughs> from um, and you mentioned that you know yes that here in New York now we're all um, you know standing in line for the knife shaved noodles, you know the Shangxi uh, knife. Knife shaved noodles, oh. <laughs> you know the trend of the moment. Just like uh, from you know Japan, we, the ramen is you know a, a trend too. We, we are we are quick to um, to accept a lot of the the differences and and 
um, you mentioned that even though it may not be, they might not be authentic, and there's all this talk about authenticity today, but even though that some of these things that we are tasting may not be authentic, it is, I think it's wonderful, this idea of globalization, and that's why I wondered, is are we seeing as much of that in, in China as well, that um, an openness to discovering new flavors and, and new foods? Yes, I, I think and the people in China are very, very, first of all, they are very, very accept, accept, acceptable to, to new food from outside world. If you go to China today, you are you're finding more and more of foreign food, so to speak, and oh, you can get almost anything you want. Uh-huh. And people accept. They say, "Hey, this is good." Now, and 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 you're starting to see influences in the local cuisines, not so much in the very traditional restaurants, but mm-hmm. in the newer ones that come out. They tend to be it be integrating the West and and the traditional Chinese style, as well as some techniques from places like Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so I, I think I think the the uh, the influences we are seeing in China is is really going towards the, a very positive side, and we are seeing more and more of that. Oh, and, and I would say authenticity is a word. Sometimes I, I, I would have um, I have something to say about it because even if, even when it's, people talk about Chinese food made in America, United States Chinese food. Some people say it's not real Chinese food, but I would say that is real Chinese food too. It's food in a different style, very much like in China we have so many different styles. So you have another Chinese food style in the United States. That's right. Chinese developed their own, and that is genuine Chinese food. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I think that's I think that's true, and I, I think that um, I, I just want to give a plug again for your book because I think that even though we are all getting away from you know, the classic traditional foods of, of one country or another, you have captured, you and, and Diora have captured um, what I would say is, you know, classic background and the regional differences that first established a lot of the, the Chinese cuisine. And again, the book is called China, the cookbook from Fiden Press. And I have been speaking with Ki Lum Chan, and, um, and he wrote this book together with his wife, Diora Fong Chan. And thank you so much, Key, for sharing your time and sharing your knowledge. Thank you very much for inviting us. Okay, and thank you for listening. Again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Remember that you can listen to this show at heritageradionetwork.org, or you can download it from iTunes or Stitcher or other listening devices. And if you come onto our website, which I hope you will do, please take a look at the homepage and click on the beating heart Help us out and give a little donation because we are a member-supported radio station all about food. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.